Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. Great to be with you and great to be with Larry, of course. This is Jordan, and today we're talking about another voice in Brookline, a voice that uh, has influenced you in a very good way and many, many people as well, Paul Epstein. Well, Paul's a terrific guy, and um, he's the brother of Theo Epstein, twin brother of Theo Epstein. Theo Epstein, of course, is the famous general manager of the Red Sox, probably the greatest general manager in baseball history, supplanting Branch Rickey because he's won a pennant for the Red Sox, who uh, hadn't had one for close to 100 years. They went off and did the same thing with the Chicago Cubs. He'll be in the Hall of Fame for sure. But his brother is unknown as a—not a famous person. But everybody looks up to Paul Epstein, including his brother Theo, because Paul is an amazing person. I want to tell you how I first met him, Jordan. I was doing— my TV program at the Brookline Access Station. And I had a date with Paul Epstein because he was, you know, by that time he was already well-known as a social worker at the high school. So Paul comes in. He's a big guy. He's about 6'3", 4", and very handsome and very striking. Uh, with immediately, you looked at him and you said, wow, what a guy. Hmm. I think when he walked in, I probably did say that. I said, wow, I didn't know you were so big and good-looking. <laughs> Anyway. It runs in the family there. I oh, it does? You oh, you know, and Paul, they're fraternal. Is that when they're not exact twins? Yeah, right, right, right. So that um, they're both handsome guys. But, you know, Paul is handsome in one way and Theo is handsome in another way. And um, I guess the whole family is good looking. So anyway, I was impressed immediately uh, by him. And just talking to him even that brief time, I immediately knew that he had an extremely generous spirit. And that was expressed, um, one of the first things he told me about was a family in Rwanda. Part of the family had gotten here. I think he was instrumental in that. There were like 10 kids. They were living in uh, subsidized housing. And he was instrumental in the whole family getting here uh, from Rwanda and uh, and living together. And uh, at that time, this again, an interview of 20, almost 20 years ago. And um, so... Um, there it was. Uh, and he, he, that's the kind of thing he did. I mean, after the time I interviewed him, uh, and in this, you know, interim period between then and now, he formed the, um, I think it's called the, it's a building, uh, over, uh, near Brookline Village, um, that was built, uh, for, as a result of his efforts mainly, and other people, of course, that were interested in it, in it, a teen center for students at Brookline High School, not part of the Brookline system, but a separate entity altogether. And that's active and been very successful. All of this stuff represents his um, generous spirit. Uh, and um, he, he told me that being a social worker at the Brookline High School would be very interesting for him because what he likes to do is get a hold of these young people and help them get over the trials and tribulations of being young and, uh, you know, uh, getting through that period. 
And he says when it all happened successfully, he feels so, uh, uh, I guess the word would be gratified by the experience, um, so that he he takes a big part in speaking to certain, and a lot of them, I think, um, younger people and getting them through a difficult time. Larry, was he a big brother as well? Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, I'm glad you asked that question, Jordan, because when I got out of when I first went to law school, I, I thought that being a big brother would be a good thing. So I got in touch with the so-called Jewish big brothers, which still exist. And they got me in touch with a kid uh, who was of mixed parentage. His mother was Jewish. His name was uh, Danny Bianchetta. Obviously, the other part of the family was uh, the father was Italian. And they had divorced. And Danny was having a tough time. He was like 10 years old. So I got in touch with them. And we spent a lot of time together over the next couple of years. And I think ultimately he did do very well. And um, I think that was a very gratifying experience for me. I think Paul Epstein did the same thing because he told me that um, he did become a Jewish, uh, not a Jewish big brother, I guess just a big brother. And uh, he found that experience so satisfying that I think that was his first experience that led him into the life of being a social worker. So, uh, yes, uh, Big Brother was a, was a big thing. And he, bec- he became a Big Brother when he was a student at Wesleyan. Uh, and I think um, it was that late um, that he became interested in the kind of work that he did, has done from then to now. You have a name here that I'm not familiar with, and I don't want to mispronounce it. Saskia? Is that the way you say it? Yeah, Saskia. That's his wife. Okay, tell us about his wife, Saskia, and where she's from and why they're such a, a perfect couple, according to what I understand. I've never met Saskia, but uh, he told me about it in the interview that I did on television. And um, it so happens that uh, his father, Leslie, who's a well-known professor at BU and also has written some great books and has received some prizes for those, was on some sort of a fellowship in the Netherlands. And uh, that's where... Um, that's where the uh, uh, he was conceived. He and and um, uh, uh, Theo Theo were conceived. Now Saskia was actually born in the Netherlands and came at a young age. Uh, she's Dutch. She's Dutch and came to this country at a young age. And ultimately, they became uh, they knew of each other because both had jobs at the very famous. Home for Little Wanderers, mm. and Saskia was his boss, so that it it came to be that he himself thought that it was unseemly, not quite correct, and they began a relationship there. They're not quite correct to have the person that you were seeing um, as uh, you know dating a person and being that person's uh, uh, working for that person. So he he left the Home for Little Wanderers and went to another job so that um but then Saskia and he ultimately got married he describes her as beautiful and uh, i think he is still married to her they have children at this particular point all these years later and that's been a uh a great relationship so that they twinned so to speak <laughs> and uh, it so happens that before that the two brothers and Saskia were at Brooklyn High School 
at the same time, but they did not know each other at that particular time. Um, twinning, I think I wrote down, twinning, not seven come 11, but two come two, uh, is my own expression for hmm. what happened is that, you know, there were a lot of twinning. Um, it so happens that his grandparents, uh, that uh, the twins' grandparents, Philip and Julia, Julius, with a, were out in Hollywood, and they wrote the screenplay for Casablanca, which yeah. is probably the most famous movie ever, close to it. And some of the greatest dialogue in movie history, no question. And I've, I've read stories about how they wrote it, and they would come up to a traffic light in this car together because they're constantly updating the script and, and coming up with these great lines. You know, I, I'm shocked, shocked that there's gambling in here, whatever it might be. So uh, it's a great story. It's a great story. Well, they listen. That uh, Casablanca was just a great movie. Uh, how could you beat Angry Birdman, Humphrey Bogart, Claude Rains? Uh, incredible. But the dialogue and the the writing, the screenplay, uh, almost every line is a gem. So, so what was the last them. line when Paul Henry flew off with Ingrid Bergman? And I think it was he played the Humphrey Bogart was Rick. Yes. And Claude Rains was the police chief. And one of them said to the other. Ah, uh, this was going to be the start of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> you said it. Well, I, I can, yeah, it's one of my, I, I'm a shrine in my office. You may have seen my picture of Bogey from that movie. Yeah. But I love it. I love it. And every line is a gem. Uh, I love the line that uh, they're talking, he and Louis, back earlier in the film, and Louis says, uh, why did you come to Casablanca, Rick? I came to Casablanca for the waters. But Rick, the Casablanca's a desert, and Rick says, I was misinformed. <laughs> it's great work, work. It's fun to do my bogey. Anyway, so you they— you a, You're a good bogey. Yeah, well— Well, you, you know. said you're an actor, that you're a good actor. Rick, Rick, get us out of Casablanca. The great Peter Lorre, Sidney Greenstreet. Yeah. Oh, my God. Were they in that movie? Absolutely, absolutely. There was just so many— And Hoagie Carmichael. And, and all right, Conrad Veet, who played the Nazi— you know that story? Yeah. Conrad Veet was a Jewish actor who fled Germany, and he always played Nazi horrible villains in the uh, American, you know, movie world. Yeah. <laughs> and he was a Jew. He would have been killed had he stayed in Germany. Did, was he in that movie too? Colonel Strasse, yeah. He, he was the German? He was the German that Bogey shoots at the air, put that phone down. <laughs> anyway, we digress. <laughs> no, that's... <laughs> You know that I love digression. I know you love. You're Mr. Digression. I know you love old movies, too, and that's... that's. Didn't I just ask you about uh, the movie I'd never seen from 1970, Fiddler on the Roof? Which strikes me as odd that you have not seen a Fiddler on the Roof presentation. But, yes, I highly recommend it with an Israeli actor named Topol, T-O-P-O-L, who came out of nowhere. No one knew who he was, but he's terrific. You'll you'll enjoy it. He's better than the other guy that played it on Broadway? Well, I, it's all a matter of taste, but he's as as good, let's put it that way. Well, I want to tell you something, Jordan, as long as we're digressing. For a long time, I didn't go to movies. Um, and um, movies was not something that I knew. I went to a lot of movies early on, but from about 1990 on, I said to myself, I don't need people eating popcorn and passing in front of me and talking behind me. And uh, uh, who knows, uh, you know, and then they started shooting people in movies and movies got loud. And if we went in there, there were umpteen coming attractions. So I said, screw this. So that, um, and I stopped seeing movies. Then 
it came to pass that t- TVs got bigger and bigger, and they started showing all sorts of movies on TV that you could you could get something from 1930. And um, so I started to become a little more of a movie fan. Lately, I've really gotten into it. And what I do is when I see a movie, uh, I go to uh, I go to the movie on uh, the internet. IMDb, perhaps. Sometimes, but usually I I go to Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Okay. And um, I read all about the movie, and they tell you so much about the movie, editing and move and music, and who wrote the screenplays, as you just said, and. Uh, who did the costumes and uh, how did they simulate the time and who got out because they had trouble on the set and other people they didn't hire because they had conflicts. But finally, they went to the last choice who won the, won the, the Academy Award. Yeah, no, I, I, you, just like my dad, and you know my father, you've corresponded with him. He does the same thing. He loves to print out those those sheets from Wikipedia and read them as he's watching the movie and follow along. By the way, uh, you probably will read, if you read the Casablanca story, that it wasn't Bogart at first. I think it was Ronald Reagan who they were considering for Rick. It's amazing what the Hollywood stories you can find. Uh, speaking of movies, though, and tying it back in, I'm going to bring us back to Brookline. The Coolidge Corner Cinema, where... So much has happened. I, I've talked to those folks. They're great people. And they've done so many community events. But uh, did you spend much time early when you were going to movies at the Coolidge Corner? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the Coolidge Corner Theater. I used to like art movies. And Coolidge Corner, um, even in, you know, there used to be a guy, uh, David, um, uh, I've mentioned him before, I think, uh, Dave, I'm trying, he was a good friend. German last name was ran it for a while. But it's always been an art theater, and they bring certain people back to the Coolidge Corner Theater. And I think the end of my story was that, you know, now I have a huge TV, and I watch the movies, and I read all about the movies. And I, and like the the true dilettante that I am, I've become a dilettantish <laughs> disciple and, you know, sort of semi Expert, but not really yeah. on movies. And I, you know, I find it very interesting. Acting. Well, we talked about acting. We did a whole series of uh, podcasts on your experience with acting and your thoughts on it. And when you really start to look at at classic cinema, you realize what worked and what didn't, and it's 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 fascinating. It absolutely. is, and even some of the stuff on TV. I don't watch a lot of a lot of the uh, stories on TV, but you know, Ken Br- Kenneth Branagh is a great actor. So now he's done this detective thing. He plays a Swedish Hercule Poirot. He's doing the no, uh, no. He's doing Wallander. Oh, Wallander! Yes, absolutely. Love it. Love. In fact, what's great to it's great to be alive, Larry. Let's put it that way. But what's great about today is you can see programs coming in from every country that's producing movies and TV shows, and some of the best, you know, through Netflix or whatever your service is. uh, Just tremendous. Tremendous stuff. Before we wrap up on— Did you ever see Contempt with um, Brigitte Bardot? Oh, that's that's an old classic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I saw it the other night. There's a scene in there between Brigitte Bardot and the French guy that played her husband that Jean goes Paul on— Belmondo, was it him? Or? No, another guy that never heard okay, of. Okay, right. But he was very popular in France. Went on for about 20 minutes— one scene, 25 minutes, they're in the apartment, and their marriage is breaking down. 
and they go from room to room and here and there. They're fighting. They're trying to, I mean, the whole thing is amazing. It's a classic scene. I think the movie was done by the one of the famous directors. Um, uh, uh, Fritz Lang had a part in the movie. Oh, my goodness. But he didn't direct it. name of the movie is Contempt. You ought to bring it up because you think you watch, as Lois said when we started watching it, what's this about? This is nonsense. And it ultimately dawned, and I said to myself, where's this going? But ultimately I said to myself, I've never seen, they they would never make a scene in Hollywood that was 25 minutes long between a husband and wife who's, and I finally I said to Lois, this is us. <laughs> well, uh, you're right about that. The, the short attention span, the goldfish memory, 10 seconds. To have people actually conversing, there was a movie called My Dinner with Andre, which is just two people speaking over a dinner. Right. And that kind of thing you don't see as much, and it's it's rare, but it's fun to watch. Well, it's real life. It's real life, yeah. Um, That's why— There's an, there's a am sure you've seen West Wing and shows like that. Aaron Sorkin is an example of a writer and a producer and a director who does heavy dialogue. So if you there's a recent film called— uh, being the Ricardos about Lucy and Ricky and the early days of the show, the Lucille Ball show, and it's really fun. It's well done, and there's so much dialogue. It's it's rare to see that anymore. Yeah. By the way, you mentioned your father. How is he? Father's well. He's older than you. Somebody is actually older than you, Larry. <laughs> and I'll tell you what keeps him going is is the love of movies and music and and. Uh, and books. He reads a lot, but he loves his Turner classic movies. Well, I'm going to write to him again. I think he'd like that. He, he communicates best via email because of his hearing being a little on the on the low side, but thank you for that. So before we wrap up on, on Paul Epstein, um, you, you said it best. He's not well known. He's not the famous one, but he, he's quietly heroic and quietly doing things, even today, that we wanted to recognize. Um, yeah, you know, I'll tell you something. I think uh, Theo looks up to him. Mm-hmm. Theo asks him for advice. Um, he's just that kind of a guy. He, I don't know whether he'll become famous. Probably not. Um, I wanted a picture at one time of Theo for my for my one of the books I've written of him playing in the you know, uh, music mm-hmm. that he does with... Yeah, the, the, the rock music band yeah. he puts together. And I couldn't get the picture, and Theo couldn't get it from Theo. And I wrote to Paul, and I said, you know, I really need this. I need that that picture. He sent me a terrific picture. Well, that's the kind of guy he is. And, um, but when they were kids, they were wild. I do want to tell a little about this. This is, a, you know, they both loved sports. They loved baseball. And they lived down on Parkman Street. Now, Parkman Street, there's a big medical building on Beacon Street, and behind it is Parkman Street. It's the one, uh, it's the one that I think that the cross street is Kent Street. Okay. Um, it's, you know, about half a mile from Coolidge Corner coming from Boston on mm-hmm. the right-hand side. They lived in that area, and they used to play. Uh, there's, a big, there's a big back parking area. And the medical building is about 12 stories high. So Paul tells me what they used to do down there. They used to play tennis ball, which is played with a tennis ball. And it used to be blue back there. So instead of 
Instead of the, uh, <laughs> the green, green monster, monster, it was the blue monster. Oh, that's funny. And if they played in one direction, they would hit the ball over some sort of a fence where the 1200 hotel is, and that would be a home run. But if played in the other direction, they would some of the balls would be hit off the windows of the medical building. So Paul says, I, I imagine many times that there were conferences going on in those offices, and all of a sudden there'd be a thump on the window. Beautiful. And he said, but well, it got to the point where we got to be strong, and we could actually hit it over the building. There you Nine go. stories high. So, and then they used to play gutter ball with a tennis ball where they'd, if you hit it, if you could get it in the gutter. And I used to do, we used to do the same thing on Gibbs Street. If you got it in the sewer, that was a goal. Oh, is that, oh, that's what you mean by gutter. In that, so you'd play on a hard street. You'd play on a street with traffic. And- well, with traffic, because he told me that one, that it was near the corner and cars would come around at top speed. He says, lucky we weren't killed. Uh, they'd come around the corner, and at home, they were wild as well. At home, Leslie would be in his room playing classical music. Sister Anya would be in her room playing pop music. Eileen, who ran that place, uh, that store that closed recently on the second floor at 233 Harvard Street, well-known with her sister Sandy, Eileen would be rushing home and making dinner for everybody. Theo and Paul, at 15... We're jousting in the hall of the apartment in a various uh, simulation of various sports. And the Markells, who live downstairs or upstairs, I don't know, downstairs, I think, would be going crazy to the point that they'd have to come up and knock on the door and saying, you can't go on with this. We can't live. And um, so Paul tells me that sports, uh, that he and um, uh, Theo engaged in at in college and high school as well as college, that sports build character. And um, so that's it. So, it's, and it's, the, you know, the last thing he told me when I interviewed him, he repeated again how thrilled he is to help kids. Um, and uh, because of his, he does have a mesmerizing appearance. Mm. And because of his open personality, he was very successful at that. Good, good uh, tribute to a man, a man who deserves it, deserves some attention, and doesn't ask for it. That's the most important thing to no, remind people. Mean. He's a very modest man. Well, Larry, uh, once again, there are many voices. There are many people in Brookline that we're talking about, and the list is endless, it seems. What a great community. Well, it is a great community. I'm happy to live there, and uh, there are a lot of great places to live. But I was just saying to Lois last night, if we lose democracy, can you imagine these – the same type of guys that that uh, did an, uh, that engineered and uh, not engineered acted in an insurrection at the Capitol. What if they were running around in Brooklyn? You know, unfortunately, we're ending this on a bad note. This is the sort of thing that could happen in America soon. Well, not I'm just you, reading. Not if you have anything to say about it. <laughs> well, you know, you know what I'm reading now. It's a perfectly marvelous book. Unbelievable, I think, is the title by. The fellow that uh, that was the leader of the group that Nancy Pelosi asked to investigate uh, the uh, insurrection in the second impeachment trial. They were the House people that prosecuted the case, and um, so that um, Jamie Raskin is that name struck a familiar. I've heard the name. I've heard the name. Yeah, yeah. He was the guy that was the head of the seven or eight people 
prosecuted the case against uh, uh, against Trump, and he wrote this book. Um, and um, I've st- yeah, I've read about a third of the book. Fascinating. And five days before the insurrection, his beautiful son, who was a student at Harvard Law School, committed suicide. Oh my goodness! My goodness! And with and then Pelosi, you know, he thinks a lot of her and. She was smart enough to appoint him to get him out of his morass. Mm, My goodness. Well, lots of food for thought right there. We've got lots of stuff to talk about in future episodes. Thank you, my friend, as always. Sorry to not answer that Brookline's a beautiful town in this dark way. (laughs) (laughs) It's still there, and it still uh, beams uh, and has a lot of light coming from it. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRuttman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Ruttman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on a life lived backwards, one man's life.